0: how is one individual different than another? I mean, there's certainly a difference between a great Dana and a Chihuahua, even if they're the same age, but there's even probably There are differences between a 10 year old Labrador and another 10 year old Labrador, um, even if they look the same. And that's what we're heading towards and and starting to get into what's, what's difference in their metabolism. What's difference in their microbiome? What's difference in the way they handle a the nutrient is the nutrient in this dog the same that the other dog should get. I mean, things like that, that's, is really interesting because, again, it it individualizes the care, not only a treatment, but preventative. And at the same time, it's a holistic approach to the individual, not just the population.
1: A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming, Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Trow Nutrition, the science of ingredients, nutrition, and blending. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition. Make one call, find it all. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition, your partner for pet ingredients and services. Chemin Nutrisurance is your pet food and rendering partner every step of the way. ProAmpac is changing the future of sustainable pet food packaging. Learn more at pets.proampac.com. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Tired of one-size-fits-all solutions that don't quite fit? At Wilbur Ellis, we're bringing custom back to the customer. We know that for your pet food and treats to shine on the shelf, you need to start with the best. After all, even the best recipe is only as good as its ingredients. From nutrition to preservation to blending and bottling, make one call to Wilbur Ellis Nutrition to find it all. We don't sell to you, we work with you. A true partnership to meet your needs. Follow Wilbur Ellis Nutrition on LinkedIn to learn how partnering with a purpose could double the power of your team.
2: This is a Pet Food Science Podcast, and I'm here with Dr. Vargis, who who I'm very pleased to be with, and it's an honor and a pleasure. As as, as Joe knows, we just were chatting about it. Um, the reality is, here we are, we have a chance to talk about Pet Food Science with Dr. Barges, who is an expert in a number of areas, um, and Dr. Barges, if you would, could you
0: could you tell us your uh, your background? Um, so given my age, hopefully I'll remember it all. But um, I I am from uh, West Virginia originally, uh, born, bred, and raised in Charleston. I went to Marshall University, uh, graduated there with my bachelor's of science, and I then went to the University of Georgia, where I graduated in 1987 with my uh, Doctor of Veterinary Medicine degree. After that, I went to the University of Minnesota, where I completed an internship and stayed for residencies in small and small internal medicine and nutrition. I did a Ph.D. as well, concurrently. I then stayed for additional time to do a postdoc um, fellowship. And then I joined the faculty at the University of Georgia. I was at Georgia for uh, about three, a little bit over three years from 94 to 97. I then went to the University of Tennessee. I was on faculty there until around 2013. Um, And uh, while there, I held an endowed chair of research and then I was interim department head for about four years so it wasn't so interim. Uh, I then left and went to uh, Cornell University Veterinary Specialist which is a referral practice affiliated with Cornell University in Connecticut and also had a position at Cornell University and then in 2016 I came back to the University of Georgia uh, three times the charms. This is my third time here and uh, my third time here um, currently I am a professor of small animal internal medicine, interventional radiology, and nutrition. I ho- um, also am a, the bulldog veterinary medicine professor, um, and this is probably my last move. So when I retire, it'll be from here. Well, that's so good. Go dogs. I, I always, you know, you, you know probably that I also
2: am a graduate of the University of Georgia, and yeah. um, I remember those days fondly. It was a great place for an education.
0: Yeah, it's a good place for an education I'm even, and very good place for sports right now, at least the football.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's well. It was good
0: when I was there too. There might that's, be yeah, an that's, true. Yeah. that's true. That's true. That's true. I came shortly after the 80 uh, the eighty um, championship, but the last couple of years have been really good. Well, that's good
2: fun. Your expertise covers a lot and we have a, a great deal, you know, to kind of pull into this episode. We won't get it all. Maybe we'll talk more than once, um, but I thought we might start with arthritis and just if if you could, you know, tell me what you what you've seen as you know a nutritionist and as a veterinary medicine uh, practitioner with arthritis in dogs and cats, then and of course we're going to talk about the science of feeding those. So let's start with the the background, if you would, please.
0: Sure. Um, well, osteoarthritis is certainly a well known problem of dogs in particular, Uh, but it also occurs very commonly in cats. And some estimates are over 90% of cats that are older, maybe than 10 or 12 years of age, have some degree of osteoarthritis. I think the issue is that many cat owners don't recognize it. Some cats are really good about hiding things. Uh, They uh, don't show the obvious lamenesses, holding legs up and things like that. What, What it's interpreted as is that they're older and so they're just not as active, and so they sleep, and they don't want to go up and down chairs or jump on and off the bed or anything like that, and uh, it can oftentimes be related to osteoarthritis. Um, And so my interest in it actually was sort of by accident. Um, uh, When I came to the University of Georgia in 94, I um, started getting involved with some research with fish oil and things like that, and then looking at different things. And I um, went to a human conference. They were talking about fish oils and osteoarthritis and the dosages were wrong and everything. And and it sort of struck me that a lot of the things in human medicine, but also in veterinary medicine, certainly in the 90s, were more related to being reactive than proactive. You know, like You don't do anything until something occurs and you try and make it better or reverse it, which by then reversing is usually not an option. So I came back and one of our orthopedic surgeons who had started a couple years before me, uh, Dr. Steve Budsberg, um, I went to him and I said, "I, I got this idea. What happens if we feed fish oil before they develop osteoarthritis? Like we use it for the inflammation, but what happens if you did it beforehand and then you used it while, you know, when they had it? And he said, oh, everybody, nobody, nobody, submits me and then about two weeks later he came back and said so i got funding to do this study and so we did this study with dogs who had um induced um arthritis of the knee um a cruciate ligament yeah i remember that study and we yeah we we developed diets that were high in omega-6s um that had a sort of amount of omega-6s that you would um, like some of them don't have any official on it, but a 30 to one ratio of six to three. And then another diet sort of in the middle of about eight to one. And then another diet that was one to one omega-6s to omega-3s. And we thought, well, we'll do an efficacy and safety study. So we pre, we, Fed them the diet, a, a standard diet. We did joint taps and things like that. Did force plate analysis, looking like, you know, how well they walked. Broke them into three groups. Fed them for uh, a time. Induced the model, and then followed them along. And it turned out that the dogs who were fed the one-to-one fish oil to uh, omega six to omega three, the high fish oil diet, and the diets were totally the same otherwise, um, had less inflammation of the joint, had less joint changes on radiographs, had better walking ability, had, um, we could demonstrate that the fish oil got, um, the omega-3 fatty acids got incorporated into the joint membranes. Um, and then we went back and we fixed them like you would do, do for a patient. And so we, he went back and, and fixed their crucius. And then you couldn't tell the difference between the groups. Clinically, they were exactly, almost exactly the same, except as we followed those dogs for a long period of time, the dogs on the continued on the high fish oil diet had less than very minimal osteoarthritic changes on radiographs and their ability to bear weight was better than the dogs on the other two diets who had progressive changes. So after that, my interest, you know, in, in looking at osteoarthritis expanded into the role of obesity and how do you modify the inflammation and, um, uh, doing those kind of things. So, um, I think it's a really good example of not only can diets help when the disease is present, but that it can actually intervene by preventing some of the disease before it even happens in high risk you know, dogs in high-risk situations. Um, something to the effect of what Thomas Edison, to paraphrase Thomas Edison said, which was, in the future, nutrition is going to be the medicine that doctors use um, or something along those lines. So um, that's where it all began. And um, it's something that you talk about. And, and you know, those those fish rolls became incorporated into therapeutic diets, but um, we now often use Therapeutic dyes. is designed to treat patients with a certain disease in, before they even have it in high-risk situations, as a means of preventative rather than as intervention. No, well, that's a that's a fantastic story, and and and
2: really a story about I I I think in oftentimes you know fixing a problem. What you said about fixing a problem being perhaps a harder. Thing to do than, than preventing the problem. So if you can get in there with this high omega three food, um, you're likely to reduce the incidence of these arthritic problems. Then that's what what I hear you say, which is just you know fantastic for nutrition, isn't it? It's it's just the the, the food is your medicine right up front.
0: Yeah, it it, it sort of is a similar idea of the work done, I don't know when it was, 80s, 70s, that um, Herman Hauselwinkel and others did looking at calcium and developmental orthopedic disease, and that you can take breeds that have the genes to develop orthopedic disease and modify it, the phenotype, their outcome, how they look, by changing their diet. Um, And I think it's something that we don't think about very often. Unfortunately, veterinarians, I mean, some of the surveys, even veterinarians think of preventative as heartworm disease and vaccinations and, you know, things like that. Whereas clients, a majority think of it is, am I feeding the right diet? Can diet help prevent something from occurring? It, you know, it's more the environment, not so much the medicine part of it. And, and I feel that it's getting better, but I think there are a lot of veterinarians that don't think along those lines, like what is the role of nutrition? And, before the problem occurs and uh don't realize the impact that it can have, you know it's not going to help all everyone um but on the other hand, if you own the dog who has the risk and you make a change and that risk is minimized, it's a hundred percent for your your yeah. and you a family member you sort of think of
2: it as um, we do so many things with our pets to control their environment. You know, we don't let them play in an unsafe area. We do, But maybe the biggest environmental thing we could do is what they're eating. And, and that's, a, that's a huge Absolutely. problem.
0: Absolutely. And unfortunately, uh, you know, again, oh, I'm sorry. It was I say, a lot of people just think, well, you just open a bag or pop a can, and that's that. And they don't think about what they're feeding. E- even, the, even the best of diets given to the wrong pet doesn't get the benefit that you want. Um, it just, we think of more in the terms of the worst diets to even the best of pets causes problems, but you've got to pick and choose what fits the situation. Yeah, that's great advice. You know, you'd,
2: you touched on obesity and you and I have talked about that over the years a bit, but it's interaction with arthritis and, and certainly another, uh, food responsive, uh, endocrinology, if you will, you want to just talk a little bit about obesity sure. I love hearing what your thoughts are.
0: Yeah, again, it's, again, one of those funny things as we started working on stuff. um, And that was when people started coming out with surveys of dogs. You know, 40% were, you know, overweight, 20% or 12% or something like that were morbidly obese. And, you know, some of the Pet Champ data, things like that, that Liz Lund um, generated. But we started looking at it at the time, back in the 80s, 90s. It was, you know, it was just, it was a mechanical issue, right? You have too much weight. It puts, it puts too much forces on the joints. It causes arthritis. It's just a cycle that no pun intended, but it keeps feeding on itself. You're obese. You have a joint instability. It makes it more unstable. So you, we got more obese, right? Yeah. Sorry. I couldn't help. Um, I guess pun intended, actually. Um, but it, but around that time is when people started coming out with the notion that obesity was much more than just a, Weight issue that it wasn't a mass effect that it was an endocrine organ that it changed metabolism that you could, you could change bacteria and you can change the bacteria in your gut and change your obesity. Um, you know, with, with, with the rat studies that they did back then. And so you start looking and now the mantra that, you know, nutritionists usually teach. You know, students in veterinary schools is obesity is an inflammatory disease, which, which is true. Um, it's a pro inflammatory state, but it's more than just sort of just the obesity, the mass effect, the, the effect of that inflammation is systemic. So you get obesity associated diseases that are infl- inflammatory in nature, osteoarthritis, pancreatitis, dermatitis, and, um, Enteritis. I mean, the itises, itities, itises or whatever, it get, just go on and on. And so we, you know, we started looking at some of that as well in terms of, uh, as many other people have done way more than I have. But, um, we, you know, we started getting interested in that, interested in well as well. And we did a study looking at obese cats and um, that, and at the time, a, a lipidosis where they don't eat, they mobilize their fats from their external, you know, subcutaneous it goes to the liver and they go into liver failure. You know, back in the early, in the eighties, early nineties, it was almost uniformly fatal um, until you, had, you learned to had, intervene nutritionally. And um, it's interesting. It very much mimics anorexia nervosa and, and bulimia in that uh, uh, they, when they're obese, they have these inflammatory mediators that are upregulated, and then they also have mediators that shut off appetite. So, for example, tumor necrosis factor, which decreases appetite, are very high in fat tissue in obese cats. And you think then if they stop eating, they start mobilizing their fat, they've all these tissues too. So now cats don't want to eat because... You'd think they'd want to eat since they were fat to begin with, but they don't want to eat because they've got all this horm- all these hormonal changes. So, I mean, it's just things like that where you where you take advantage of situations and you just, you know, you keep up with literature. You listen to what people say and you start thinking, well, what if we did the following? Uh, what if we, you know, changed, you know, something else? We've got some studies going on now looking at, um, you know, we we've done body composition studies where you can do, Something called dual energy X ray absorptiometry or DEXA, which is a non invasive way. We just have a new DEXA scan at the University of Georgia. It, it can do a whole dog scan in like two minutes. Um, it's amazing. It was a donation from a client, uh, bought the unit, gave got five years worth of, of, um, of, um, um you know, taking care up. of it. Uh, yeah. And so, um, you know we've started using it for different things one of the things we're looking at is and and it will differentiate intraabdominal fat from peripheral fat too with the way you draw your draw your regions it's it's really cool um but you know we've got studies that we're going to do and have started looking at different foods and how they change where the fats deposited um animals with osteoarthritis what's their Obesity, some of them don't seem obese. And then when you scan them, they've got a lot of intra-abdominal fat. Um, you know, they talk about the pear versus the apple and humans, things like that. So it's, it's interesting in the fact that we have more tools available than we had 30 years ago, you know, really start looking at the nuances of some of the things. And I, th- I think that's where pet nutrition is. A lot of the big things have been addressed, you know, defic- total deficiency, t- toxicities, you know, things like that. And now we're getting to the point of how do we make it better? It's good, but can we do better? Yeah.
2: Yes. Excellent thought. And and aren't we getting more into this um, I w- balance is too easy of a term, but, but in a sense the multifactorial component of nutrition so that you are thinking more broadly than you know, when we first came in and said, "Well, we want to meet all the minimums, not go over all the maximums, and you got a pet food, but it, it, it's more than that, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's it's much more than that because it's not only like you have too much or too little, but what is having just enough or just barely under or even a Normal amount, what does that do to everything else? Um, because if it were so simple that it's too much or too little, then we would cure everything. Um, because all we do is just give enough. Uh, and yet we know the diseases occur when you have enough. And so, the you know, the question is, is it enough for the situation and for the pet? So, the you know, the kind of the new terminology now is, you know, one health medicine was sort of the buzz term 10 15 years ago, now it's precision medicine. You know, how is how is one individual different than another? I mean, there's certainly a difference between a Great Dana and a Chihuahua, even if they're the same age. But there's even probably, there are differences between a 10-year-old Labrador and another 10-year-old Labrador, um, even if they look the same. And that's what we're heading towards and, and starting to get into. What's what's difference in their metabolism? What's the difference in their microbiome? What's difference in the way they handle a the nutrient? Is the nutrient in this dog the same that the other dog should get? I mean, things like that. That's is really interesting because again it it individualizes the care, not only a treatment but preventative, and at the same time it's a holistic approach to the individual, not just the population. The very best for that pet. And how do you think this is a little bit of a
2: sidetrack, but how do you think we we get that? I mean, you know, you got I like your 10-year-old lab, you know, but the two might be very different and in lifestyles, if you will, or something, but but how do we get to that sure. understanding? Do you think?
0: Yeah, I, I, if I if, if I had the answer to that, I wouldn't. I'd be here as a Nobel Prize laureate, not as a, well, not as an aging I faculty member. By the <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think again, what we're getting to is the capability of technology. I mean, the, the idea that it's not. I don't know. These are going to be poor examples. And I appreciate you letting me ramble because as you get older, you ramble a lot anyway. That's the students that that I teach. Um, Or or just a lack of... Capability of stopping yourself. (laughs) Um, you know, I, I think that the, the omics are going to lead the way. They're starting to lead the way. Like what it isn't just, is this a 10 year old lab and that a 10 year old lab or whatever it is? Is this a 10 year old lab and what's metabolism? Well, how do you check that? Well, things like metabolomics, for example, tell you to some degree. Here's what their metabolism is that's going on. Here's what the proteomics. Here's what's going on. I mean, the genome part is interesting because it shows you the genetic risk, but genetic risk, unless it's, unless it is just a straight out genetic trait, you know, some mutation that results in something like Down syndrome or whatever, th- those genetics are being modified by everything else. Well, your calcium and large what 3, eat, the environment they're, they're in. Yeah um you know what they eat where how they exercise how much do they exercise are they exposed to different things you know the epigenetic part of it is is very interesting and and we're getting to a point now where we're looking at well it's not, we're not only looking at that but we we have started looking at the things that are called microRNA So we're not even just looking at RNA we're like little pieces and stuff um and i think that's you just keep getting smaller and smaller you get more details then what's got to happen is it's got to become accessible and affordable. Otherwise it's great that you can do all this, but if it takes a million dollars to test your pet, very few people are gonna be able to do it. Um but as the technology advances, it will become more and more I mean, it used to be you do gene- yeah, like a whole genome study and it was, you know, thousands of dollars. Now it's well, like you can do it on campus it. for like a hundred bucks, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's yeah, fascinating. And thank you. Um you know, one of the things that I've
0: looked at and and we've done. I, I, I'm sorry. I'll say, I say, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt. I want to say one more thing. The The other thing that has to happen is uh, the other thing that has to happen is because it's becoming so specialized, people who are doing this are are narrowed into their field. Right. They like they are um, not only a, like a person metabolomics, they only look at metabolomics and diabetic people. Or something like that. And what it takes is someone who's more of a generalist to take a step back and say, how does that impact everything else? Right? Because you're getting all this information that's just this great detail. And they see the not only the tree, they see the leaf on the tree, but they don't see the whole forest as to how does that interact. And that's where Veterinarians come into play because we're much more holistic than physicians, I believe. It, uh, it takes clinicians with basic scientists because the basic scientists understand that, you know, subcellular stuff, but the clinician says, well, how does that help a dog or a person or a child or a whatever? And it's got to take that inter- integration of everybody to really make this. You know, to, to bear the fruits. Tremendous truth there.
2: And I, I actually want to get back to that before we're done and just talk to you about how you see building those successes in a team. Let's set it aside for a moment. Um, I wondered if you might talk about the stone risk things that, you know, we've done a, a bit and aligned with each other, but you've done a lot of work looking at those uh, stone formers in dogs and cats. And, you know, you're, it just again, if you tell us what what do you see there? What's the what's the the foundation you're building on, and then maybe what you might try and do nutritionally.
0: Well, I, I think you know there was sort of a flurry in the '80s, '90s, or so, and then uh, a lot of dice came out to help, and they're based on science, uh, a good science. Um, but I've and I have sort of I sort of went away from it for a while and I've come back to it um, because it it is an example of an inborn error of metabolism. I mean, not in the strictest sense um, in terms of things. Some stones are like cysteine or urate, but it's how why do some pets get stones and others don't give in the same situation? And so what separates them? And again, I think it's something that shows that diet can not only treat it in many situations, not all, but but can help prevent it and and prevent it in ways that high-risk individual pets, dogs, cats, can benefit from not having to go through ha- having a stone before someone says, well, maybe we got to change your diet um, and, or to give you a drug or a combination thereof. So I've come back to, we're doing some studies clinically looking at things, um, Uh, we're starting to look at, again, the metabolism that the pets have changes in metabolomic profiles. We're starting to look at, uh, there's some evidence of microRNA, um, what roles that have uh, may have in in different situations, but it it just shows that a stone, you know, a stone, a stone formation isn't just, they're dumping a bunch of minerals in urine and they just form a stone that there's a lot more that goes into it. And while diet certainly helped that a lot the question is what can we do to make it better because the ultimate treatment isn't to be able to do something non or minimally invasive to treat us with stones the the goal at some point probably not in my life is to say here's the ones that are high risk and if we intervene now they'll never form a stone um you know so they don't have to experience the treatment yeah fantastic goal Um, but but yeah it's very interesting the saturation studies the role of different ingredients the inhibitors that are present how, how can we help that's are things that i've cycled back to well, in the last well, year or two. a yeah,
2: little bit for me and for for the folks listening you know you've been there a lot what would you look for in a food to aid in that management to try and prevent or you know a lot of foods number of foods have been shown to reduce uh, reduce the reoccurrence um what, what, what would you look for as your expertise over?
0: I, I think, I think what we're, what we're starting to look at more now isn't you're changing. So, so when we look at stone disease, one of the things that's often used is looking at the state of saturation. So they call it relative supersaturation and there's different ways of doing it. There's computer programs that do it. Um, there are different types of computer programs that do it. And, even different pet food companies use the different computer programs um, and you do get different answers. So like there's no one, no one um, test that gives you that. Um, But, but it's more than just that. It's certainly part of it. And saturation just basically says if I'm at risk for a certain type of stones that has this composed of some minerals and what's most common in people and over 40% of dogs and cats is calcium oxalate. So if I have a urine has a lot of calcium and oxalate in it, Then my saturations are high and I could form a stone. The trick is that a lot of humans and a lot of Middle East older dogs and cats are have oversat, you know, have urine that's saturated with calcium oxalate. And yet many don't form stones. So there's something that separates them. And the question then is what separates them. And it has to do with these inhibitors and things like that that are present in our urine. So when I look at diets, it isn't just doesn't modify the concentration of minerals, but Is there something that changes, that the diet can do to change the risk of them forming stones, even if it doesn't? Change the minerals that much, and if you can change the minerals and have that, then you've got a double-edged effect, um, and and that's that's what I would look for. Um, things that are known to inhibit, um, like citrate, for example, is one of those with calcium oxalate. Mm-hmm. Some studies show they don't, but if you look closely, they usually do. And so, things that increase that, things that dilute out the urine, you know, dilutions the solution to pollution them, um, uh, things that help lower the mineral levels. But even if you don't get them down low enough, can you change the environment in the urine to prevent those minerals from coming together and precipitating out? Either they pee it out more often or, and, or you've got something to keep the minerals from binding. Um, So those are, those are some of the things that we're looking at as well. And I think the other is, there's still a, meta- a change of there's still a metabolism metabolism problem, you know, like not all miniature schnauzers form calcium oxalate, but that's a high risk breed. So what separates the stone formers from the non stone formers? What's different about them genetically is one thing, and it's, it's probably harder to find. But metabolically, what's different? And if I change diet, can I change their metabolism? Right? I mean, that's really what 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 you're what you really want you want to look at. It's not the end. It's It's what do you do in the middle that changes the end, not what is, how do you change only the end? Which kind of brings me to fatty
2: acids back again. And it's, it's sort of a, an inflammatory disease. What do, do you think it's a, you know, just reduce the inflammation as we know how with arthritis or is there more there
0: than that? Or what's your view? Well, I think there's, yeah, I think there's part of it in there and it's certainly true. Um, uh, with stone disease and people, probably more is what we know about than actually dogs and cats. Um, now people, we usually form kidney stones and our kidney stones are often calcium oxalate. And it's been shown that people form the crystals inside the kidney tissue first and there's inflammation and then those crystals sort of migrate into the urine space and then form the stones in the kidneys. Um, and so there have been studies. There was a, a researcher at the University of Florida, a human med, um, um, physician, a medical doctor, physician, that looked at fatty acids and published a lot on fatty acids and their role in stone formation. Um, because those fats get in the cells and cell membranes, you get inflammation. It, it changes, um, changes the, the composition of urine to a degree. Yeah. And, and it changes metabolism, right? You shift from energy coming from one nutrient to a different one. Um, it hasn't been looked at as much in dogs and cats, although I usually do use it. I mean, the, the presence of stones causes inflammation, but inflammation could be part of the stone formation because stones are not just minerals. They're 93, 95% mineral, but there's about 5 to 7% that's a something called matrix, which is this protonaceous junk, the sort of like toothpaste, cement, that holds everything together. Um yeah, and in a very organized fashion, and it's hard to evaluate what that matrix is composed of. But what they have found in rodent models and in humans, at least, is that it's composed of inhibitors of crystalline stone formation, but also inflammatory proteins and proteins that leak from the cells in the kidney. And so, that's where things like fish oil and changing the inflammation and changing the the metabolism, so you get different proteins, might might have a role. Yeah.
2: Well, that's great. Which you know, I'm enjoying our talk. I wonder if we have a little bit of time, short time, because I do want to get to team dynamics. But but a little bit about kidney disease, where you've you've had a lot of research and a lot of uh, a lot of interaction. I'm sure as a veterinarian. So let's let's do the run on, on kidney disease.
0: Well, kidney disease is uh, again, we're finding more and more that it isn't just uh, you know. You end up with it, and so be it. So there are things again that we're starting to recognize that can make it worse. We, we know di- from diet alone we can slow it down. Um, in many situations, it is still a prog- chronic kidney disease. It's still a progressive disease, but we can slow the progression down. Um, you know, dogs in some studies live three times longer on a therapeutic kidney diet than if they don't have their diet changed. Um, things like that, and and again, it's coming down to at the time we just sort of. Didn't know because these were studies that are done, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. We know different nutrients have an effect, but we didn't know why. And now we're starting to figure out the whys. Um, we know the role of hypertension and protein loss in the urine, and now we know diet can modify that. Some of the, those things. Again, we're doing some studies, and we and uh, one of our surgeons has done some studies with microRNA um, and its role because it in it, different types of microRNA are associated with laying down scar tissue and inflammation, and you can change the microRNA by diets um, in some situations. So we're starting to get down to the nitty gritty, you know, the details to figure out why it works on some and why it doesn't work in others. Right. I mean, I mean, even if you have a treatment no, no treatment is 100 percent for the most part. And so the question is, why isn't it? Um, but again, even more so, how do we predict which ones would and can we intervene to prevent it from happening? that That's the long, long-term goal. Well, that's great
2: information. And really part of that why is really understanding the health, right? So we, uh, we've always sort of had the, the mantra that, well, we, we, we see when things go wrong, but understanding why they're going right <laughs>
0: is a lot harder. Well, I think we failed to real. We failed or We're starting to at least some people. But I think we have failed to realize that it's okay to have a disease. The question isn't reversing the disease. The question is living well with the disease, right? Like you have a chronic disease. It's not going away. You're controlling it. Um, and so as long as you don't have problems with the treatment, how do you live well with the disease? Um, there was a study looking at Rottweilers, and and it was from birth to death, basically. And, and so many of them, there are quite a few still alive in it. But as the Rottweilers aged, they found that a lot of them had cancer. And they didn't die of cancer. They didn't weren't even diagnosed with cancer. But when they did the autopsies, they found that there was a reasonable percentage that had cancer of some sort. Not just benign cancer, but malignant cancers. And you go, well, what made them, you know, why didn't they show problems? Well, they somehow... Their metabolism, whatever it is, they learn to live well with it. Um, and they end up dying of something else, not the malignant cancer that they lived with for who knows
2: how long. It's fascinating. We've seen a little bit of that with calcium with oxalate stone formation. You know, that like cat looks completely, wonderfully normal, has a normal life. And then we find them on. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. You take a
0: radiograph and suddenly you find all these stones. You didn't even know yeah. that because they had not any yeah. clinical signs. Oh, yeah. well, I mean. That under low grade liver disease, chronic pancreatitis, heart, uh, you know, low grade heart disease, if for lack of a better term, um, you know, just things where you go, well, they're abnormal. You know, as we get better at diagnosing things, we're now finding things that we didn't see before because our ultrasounds are better, our blood works better, things like that. And then you go, but they're totally healthy. Like clinically, they're fine. Do I? Which is worse, not me not treating the problem, you know, what I have found is abnormal, or perhaps giving them a treatment? that will make them sick when they weren't having any problems to begin with. Um, so it, that we're sort of stuck right now in this conundrum when we find these things. Ah, I found this mass. Now what? You know, uh, because there is a 16 year old dog and they've been they're clinically fine. You know, they're here because they need a dental disease. And I find this liver mass. Now, like, do I take them to do I take a. 95 year old person without any clinical science to surgery basically if they're a 16 year old dog yeah you know I mean, or, I mean, I mean right? you, you, you well you know for some people they want to do it and for others you feel like you should do it and you have to sit down and say like if this were your 95 year old mother and she was totally fine, no problems would you want to her to go under anesthesia and an open surgery uh, you know and that that's that's we're hitting that point because we don't know what to do with them yet. We don't know what what happens if we don't do something. No, that's great. I, you know, Dr.
2: Bartz, um you had talked earlier about you know this this value of having someone around you who complements your uh, expertise, and it fascinates me as you know i have been in this in this sort of scientific endeavor a long time, and that that value of the the successful team first of all it's just fun i always i always love it because it's it's fun but then putting it together and holding it together what do you see what would you what would you look for for that team you wanted to be involved with or, or leading and members you wanted to bring in what
0: what characteristics might come to mind well i'll i'll, I'll start with the general idea first and I'll I'll get to a, a more specific thing so the general idea is to find people who are excited and interested in advancing knowledge about something, whatever that something is. Um, And it takes an understanding that everyone has a role. Some roles are going to be maybe bigger than others, depending on what you're doing. Like, you know, as a clinician, I don't have a $2 million, $5 million lab with all this equipment. I have to find people who can do it. Um, And so if we're doing stuff where we're using the equipment, then they have a big role in this. And I am the one who's just trying to, Oversee things, so it takes that. It, it takes a willingness for everybody to share. Um, my mentor as a resident was Dr. Carl Osborne, and one of his sayings was, "Art is I, and science is we." And it takes that we approach. And unfortunately, there's enough islands in medicine and veterinary medicine that they don't all come together. Um, versus you know the team community uh, approach, um, and and sometimes it. You know, you you lose out because you're trying to work with somebody who has four NIH grants and $20 million of funding and you've got this little $15,000 study to them is sort of like not not necessarily important but because it's not important to them and their career and their postdocs and everything else, even though that may be your whole career, um, pretty much in a, you know, a small dollar nutshell. So it, it really takes a willingness to do it and it takes an environment where it's encouraged now, having said that, um, I mean, I've been at a couple of schools and it's gotten better through the years, I will say. And and this is perhaps a shameless plug for the University of Georgia. It's really good here. I mean, I've been here six years and I work with a metabolomics international eminent scholar, uh, metabolomics expert. He's in Complex Carbohydrate Research Center with someone who does mass spec um and and chromatography um we work with uh we work with some folks who are researchers at Virginia Commonwealth University um as part of our group uh, people within the department uh people within the college outside the department um, where I work with, work with people at Emory University. Um, and, and one of the things that the University of Georgia has pushed by, from our provost is a precision medicine approach and is very specifically geared to hiring people who do. Sort of communal work. You are there to help other people. So we have one person who joined us um, from Iowa State. Um, um, Karen Allensback is a GI expert, a veterinarian, and, um, she's doing organoid research. And we've already started collaborating, not, I mean, we, not only we, but we as the department have already started collaborating with her with clinical studies and things. I mean, that is what you need. You need someone who says, I can do the techniques, but I don't have access to the natural spontaneously occurring disease. You've got those and it will we'll learn from that to the translational part to humans, but it will benefit your pets, your patients, which are dogs and cats or horses or whatever, you know, you're working with in terms of being a veterinarian. That, that is the attitude that has been fostered. And one of the reasons I don't see me leaving here except to retirement, um, because there's so much fun stuff happening.
2: I mean, that's just the thing that gets you up, right? It is fun and it's exciting. And, and I always, I always smile because the team, the the benefit, the sum of those is successfully is, is so much greater than the individual parts contribute, and that's just it's a marvelous thing. Yeah, absolutely, it is more than the
0: sum of its parts. Yeah, it's great fun.
2: Well, what do you think then? Are, are you, uh, if you look over the horizon, you see anything that uh, you might want to tell? the uh, Maybe,
0: maybe not your next grand proposal, because you might want to keep that. But oh. that sort of things you might. Yeah, well, we've got we've got things. For. So we we yeah. So so we're still working on we're still doing stuff with stone disease with uh, collaborating with folks looking at cancer, um, lymphoma in particular. We're working uh, doing the chronic kidney disease studies and primarily cats. Um, you know, looking at different things. Uh, body composition studies and and interventions, not only from obesity, but body composition and different disease states, things like that. Um uh One of the things that's exciting, uh, all of them are exciting, but one of the things that we've gotten involved with in the last, probably about, well, COVID sort of put a damper on it for a little bit, but um five years or so is the role of how food is processed and health and disease. So, um, we started looking at in human nutrition. They talk about ultra processed, processed and minimally processed foods. So we started looking at how food is processed, pet foods are processed and does it influence different things? So I have one doctoral student who finished. I've got three doctoral students right now. Um, two are mine. One is, um, one is, um, uh, in bioinformatics. I'm on her committee, but you know we're looking at you know dogs we're doing some studies in cats too where we're feeding them we're to the point now where we can make identical diet which is it's a misnomer because you can't do this but literally but identical diets are just processed differently and we're looking at how does it change metabolomic patterns how does it change the microbiome how does it change some other things that we're looking at um, and uh and at the same time we're running samples we're running samples looking at Uh, clinical disease states too. So dogs with lymphoma, cats with chronic kidney disease, things like that. We have been involved with the Morris Animal Foundation, the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study. We actually went through all of their diet information for them and sort of cleaned it up and then gave them our opinion on the process part of it. And so we are uh, in the works um, getting samples to look at Different age golden retrievers that are healthy obese golden versus non obese, lymphoma goldens versus non lymphoma, maybe goldens with cardiac disease or not cardiac disease, things like that. Um, we, we are working w- again with people at different places looking at what are called advanced glycation end products, which are end products of where protein and carbohydrates sort of mix under heat and water. And usually we don't like those. Is that kind of your position or what do you think about those well, if you call no, them ages? Like, you know, actually like- No, no. Actually, we like them a lot because that's what gives food its flavor, right? I mean, (laughs) advanced education and products. Like, if you if you grill a steak, the grill marks are even give it more flavor. Caramelized onions. uh, I'm not sure, right? What what we taste and what we should have are quite the same. The problem, the problem is that it's like anything. Too much is too much, and everything in moderation. So, in humans, this is a huge. I mean, there are thousands upon thousands of articles that come out now every year on this and the ones that have looked at associations with high levels of advanced glycation end products, either circulating in their urine or what they eat or any combination thereof. If you, depending on the study, eat like 10 to 15% of your diet, that's high in advanced glycation end products, your all cause mortality goes up like the, the, like 1.4 to two times if you don't eat as much. Um, There, it increases your risk for cardiometabolic syndrome, chronic kidney disease, osteoarthritis, non-alcoholic fatty liver, um, things like that, uh, neurodegenerative disorders. I mean, it's just everything. And what was found in at least a doctoral student's um, dissertation out of Europe, uh, Van Ruggen, is that when you look at dog and cat foods, dog foods, and she tried to she measured it in foods, and then she compared it with if a dog. Different, you know, a dog of a certain weight was eating this diet. How much would they consume? And then she normalized it to how much would a human eating a Western diet eat relative to a dog at the bottom, metabolic body weight basis. So it was a very clever thing to say: dogs and humans aren't the same, but right, but, but, but normalize let's find it, it in that denominator, it, right. Yeah, so it turns out that cats consume 42 times the amount of AGEs than humans do, and dogs 132 times the amount of AGEs. And then when you take a step back on that, and canned foods are worse than dry foods, when you take a step back on that, you go, so what are the diseases, again, associated with eating too much AGEs? Diabetes mellitus, skin disease, inflammatory bowel disease, chronic kidney disease, osteoarthritis. Uh, pancreas disease, liver disease, n- cognitive dysfunction, neurodegenerative disease, and you go; those are what we see a lot in our older dogs and cats. Now the question is, does does the processing have a role in this or not? And I mean, who knows? I mean, the answer is we don't know, and um, we can only speculate. But it's we're starting to you know look at that now, um, and we show that we can dogs that eat canned foods have more AGs in their body than circulating than dogs who eat dry food, who have more than air dry food, who have more than just a raw diet, a minimally processed diet, um, uh, where we use a pediococcus, bacterial organism to, to help with infectious disease. So th- those are the things that are sort of that are very interesting to me. And we're trying to run disease states at the same time we're looking at control studies to then come back and say, well, if the disease state is associated with high AGEs, maybe now if we feed a diet that lowers it, would that have a benefit? That that's where we're at. That's very, very interesting and and
2: sort of if I could summarize you know, what you're telling me is it's not just what you eat, but how it was prepared before you eat it that really, really we need to think about.
0: And then, Dan, I, I just want to say this. Uh, I, I isn't saying that dog and cat food's bad, right? I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there. We don't know what the what the association might be. We don't even know if there's an association right now. And there are ways to modify that if there is an association. But it doesn't even have to be cause and effect yeah well thank you for that
2: correction I and mean, not a correction for that clarification because you know, one might go out and say well then I just want to stop ages in ages intake," and, and that wouldn't be what you're suggesting I understand that so but, but is there a I for I asked you for looking over the horizon you know so we look over the horizon we say oh here's an area right
0: yeah there's an there's an area and, and you get a lot of people involved with it and again it's a group approach with residents and doctoral students and collaborators and pet owners and you know, funding agencies and the industry, and you just keep building on things. And, you know, for me, what's over the horizon is to continue to do this for at least a some period of time and then leave it for someone. You always want to train the person who's going to take your place and make them and make sure they're better than you are. Um, and so hopefully leaving it to somebody who's better, smarter and uh, than I am and just continue on that is worthwhile.
2: Well, thank you. And you know, I obviously have felt the same way, and laying that foundation is certainly part of what, you know, what we, maybe, what our age, desires that foundation is strong to build on. And you know, I, I sort of joke and tell people, you know, that at least ten percent of what I say is wrong. I just don't know what percent, of which one that is. Right.
0: <laughs> that is true. At least ten percent is wrong. <laughs> it's funny. I, I I I did a um. I, I was teaching in a class, and I at the end I always do like a little multiple choice quiz just to sort of make sure they got what I wanted them to get out of the lecture. And the residents wanted to come and listen, so the residents came and listened. At the very end, they said that was really good. I learned a lot. And then one of them said. Um, We don't know how you tell you this, but one of your questions at the end was wrong. I went, which one? And they went, well, the one about such and such. And I pulled it up and went, ah, I put the wrong drug down. Like, why didn't you stop me and tell me? Because well, we didn't want to embarrass you. I go, you're not going to embarrass me. yeah, now that I now have to now I have to go to the entire class and say I was stupid because I had made this slide wrong. Like in the moment, you got to tell me. (laughs) So, like, yeah, at least ten percent's wrong. You
2: know. <laughs> well, Doctor Rogers, thank you so much. I, I, you know, I just enjoyed having this interaction time. Thank you for it. Maybe we get a chance to do it again, dive a little deeper. But
0: boy, today was today was fun. It was a good one. Yeah, we we, it just shows that you can be a jack of all trades and a master of none. I've dabbled in a lot of things. I'm not sure I'm a master of any of it, but uh, it's been a lot of fun. Um, You know, like Jimmy Buffett saying, I've had a good life all the way, so I I got no complaints. Uh, And it was fun. Thank you for inviting me, and maybe we'll be back. I hope again. So thanks again. Good to see you.